How might teachers use their voice and power for social change? Today in the show, I speak with social justice artist and sketchnote enthusiast, Sylvia Duckworth. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. You might know Sylvia as the sketchnote promoter and author of two books on the topic. Or maybe you know her as the 2015 Prime Minister's Teaching Award winner. Or perhaps you discovered one of her powerful images on Instagram about a social justice issue. Or maybe this is the first you're hearing about her, in which case you are in for a treat. If you know anything about Sylvia, you'll know that she is an educator with a growth mindset, who's passionate about learning, not afraid to share her voice with the world, and uses her platform for good. In this conversation, we talk about Sylvia's journey in education and how her most recent chapter as a retired, but still very active educator is working out for her. We also talk about sketchnoting, but we really sink our teeth into how Sylvia is now using her skills in sketchnoting to educate others about social justice issues. We also get into the risk and clear benefits of teachers sharing their voice online. A theme that kept coming up for me while chatting with Sylvia Duckworth is the idea that every teacher has their own unique superpowers. And there are so many reasons why others need us to share these. Sylvia has many, many superpowers. So let's jump right in and learn more about them. Please welcome to the show, Sylvia Duckworth. Sylvia Duckworth, I am so excited to get to talk to you today. I'm a huge fan and it's just a really nice treat to get to chat with you. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Celeste. Nice to meet you. Um, I always start by having people introduce themselves. So can you begin by saying who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Oh, sure. My name is Sylvia Duckworth. I live in Toronto and I am a retired teacher. I taught for more than 32 years in the public and the private or the independent systems. I was teaching French and technology, and most recently I taught at Crescent School in Toronto. It's an all-boys school, and I've written two books on sketchnoting, and so that's mm -hmm. sort of what I'm focused more now, so is on um, just spreading my love and passion for sketchnoting, uh, which is a form of visual note-taking, and that's what I've been doing for the past, well, since I retired, I've been attending conferences and speaking on that topic. Yeah, it's pretty amazing the work that you've been doing with sketchnoting. So let's uh, let's start there. I want to hear how you got to this place in education, because I want to call you an edu celebrity. I don't know if you would call yourself that, but I feel like you have a pretty awesome following. Um, can you take me just through your journey in education? How did you get started and how did you end up here? Uh, okay, um, I always wanted to be a teacher since as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a phys ed teacher, actually. Mm -hmm. I always loved sports. I was a real jock growing up. But there were no jobs um, in phys ed when I graduated. So I ended up getting a French teaching job, which I wasn't expecting to get. I had I took the bare minimum two credits at university so I could teach <laughs> French. And I ended up getting hired to teach French. And I, um, I ended up really enjoying it. So I mm -hmm. had to look back. Um, and then I got on, I started sketchnoting about, I'm going to say about eight years ago. I started to notice these really beautiful drawings on 
social media related to education and I thought I'd give it a try and um, I grew to love it and I ended up um, being really interested in in sharing that love with, with everyone in education. So for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with sketchnoting, sketchnoting is a way of taking notes. It's actually been called visual note-taking as well and it's just a way of of taking notes using text so you're writing notes um, but you're also adding little drawings or little doodles and when you combine the writing with the doodles that's that's sketch noting and it's been um, it's a it's a great way to get students more engaged in note taking and it's fun and um, it, it 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 basically there's many studies that prove um, the strong link between drawing and memory and it sort of mm. brings all that in with with increased engagement on the students part as well so um yeah that sort of brings up me up to date to today i think yeah that's awesome i love how excited people are about something like sketch noting i think that you know i've done it with my own students like we'll be listening to a podcast for example or watching mm-hmm. something and using it as a tool for them when they're uh listening primarily and they love it like my students love it and you're so right that it helps them remember things but it taps into other forms of intelligence Um, but you know what celeste if i could just interrupt for a sec because there's a real misconception especially amongst teachers that if the students are not looking at you directly they're not absorbing Mm -hmm. the valuable information that you're dispensing And the studies that I've come across actually show the opposite to be true. So um, can I talk about one study really quickly? Yes, yes. Um, So there is a study done in 2006. Um, Actually, I forgot the name of the researcher now, someone in England. But she took two groups of adults, and both groups of adults had to listen to a really boring pre-recorded phone conversation. Um, one group of adults were allowed to doodle during the phone conversation. The other group was not allowed to doodle. And then they tested these adults on how many words they recalled from the conversation. And the group that was allowed to doodle was able to recall almost twice as many words as the non-doodling group. And um, the really interesting thing about the study was that the doodles that the adults created didn't necessarily have anything to do with the phone conversation. It was just the act of um, doodling that kept the brain that much more awake and that much more engaged in the conversation. So as teachers, when you think, when you often, and I was guilty of this as well, accusing students of not paying attention when they're doodling, when actually research shows the opposite, that when they're doodling, they're actually paying more attention. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to get your head around that concept as a teacher, because I know that um, so many times, you know, in teacher's college and working with teacher mentors saying, you know, don't teach until everyone's eyes are on you. And so (laughs) this is something you kind of have to wrap your head around. Yeah, really... I don't want to say force, but it encourages teachers to really rethink what it means to be engaged and present mentally in a room. And, you know, I've had students who that is their number one strategy of staying present and engaged. And it's often drawing completely unrelated things to class, but they are so paying attention. They are so 
in well, it. Here's the thing, too. Um, I mean, how many times have you been on the phone or you've been in, in a <laughs> staff meeting and you end, you end up doodling? And so doodling actually is it's a way that your brain is trying to keep you more focused uh, in what's going on around you. Because if you weren't doodling, you might fall asleep. You might take out your phone. You might... Um, you know, start daydreaming. So doodling actually keeps you more in the moment. And this is yes. a, this is this is what's really a misconception with a lot of a lot of teachers. I f- I find it so interesting um, your own journey in sketch noting because you're pretty famous for supporting teachers in learning this, and you travel the world giving workshops and encouraging teachers to play around with this tool. Mm-hmm. And I heard in an interview that you really only started like a couple of years before you wrote your first book. So you wrote a book, you've written obviously tons of resources, but you were only playing around with it for a couple of years before you started really sharing it. I want to know more about that. Like, that is so cool. Like, Well, the other part of the story is that I stopped. So when I do workshops, the first thing I do is I ask the participants, how many of you think that you cannot draw? And then sort of, you know, 99% of, of the audience will raise their hand. A lot of people think that they can't sketch note because they can't draw, and it has very little to do with drawing. So what I teach people to do during workshops is how to draw really basic shapes to represent different things. For example, if you can draw a computer, and I show, you know, I'll show people how to draw a really easy computer, um, that can be used to represent anything that you do on a computer. So it could be research, it could be homework, it could be communication, it could be entertainment. And so you, what you end up doing is you end up building this base vocabulary of icons or little doodles mm-hmm. that can represent many different things. So, um, so there's that, and then uh, that I want the audience to be aware of, but also the question as to how I wrote a book after just doing sketchnoting for a couple of years. It's just something I actually found that there was a need for some instruction out there because sketchnoting, I was seeing it everywhere. Like, like all teachers want to learn how to sketch now. They want their students sketchnoting. I thought, well, I found a couple of books that were related more to uh, sketchnoting in industry, um, mm-hmm. like in business, but I didn't, there wasn't a lot out for schools. There's more now for education, but I was, that I wrote one of the first books having to do with education mm-hmm. and sketchnoting. Um, there's another one by Wendy Pillars. I think she wrote it just before I did. And now there's a couple more that, that are fantastic. But so, yeah, I thought there was a need. And so I thought I'd, I'd, um, I'd write the book because of that. But I, I just want to go back to this idea of you having such a clear growth mindset because I was mm. obviously doing research about you and you won the Prime Minister's Teaching Award, which is a really big deal. So, you know, belated congratulations on Thank that. You. Um, when I was reading about it, though, I was so interested because you said uh, that you had started a Mandarin club when you were a teacher after just studying a little with a tutor and learning alongside your students in this club. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as a person with a growth mindset? Yeah, I, well, it all... Yeah, I I would say yes, but also um, is it it's all about whether you find something that you're interested in, mm-hmm. and and so when something that I'm interested in um, comes across my my comes into my life and and I think this is really cool. Yeah, I'm gonna pursue it to master it or to see if I can discover whether I can actually get better at it. 
Um, but I think that's true for most people, don't you, Celeste? It's just a matter of having the luck to come across these things that actually you become interested in to learn more about. Um, and I think that's that's something that is lacking in education these days is when we're sticking to these rigid curriculums and not giving kids the chance to dive into things that they really are passionate about, right? And that's what the project-based learning movement is all about. Yeah, yeah but I, I do think that you are pretty unique, Sylvia Duckworth. I don't huh. think that that is what most educators have the bandwidth for. Not that I don't think that most of us would really get into and nerd out on something about mm. given the time, but I think that what you've created for yourself, which is getting to pursue things you're curious and interested in, whether it's Mandarin or sketchnoting, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, do you like regularly carve out time for yourself to have like hobbies or things outside of teaching mm. when you were in the classroom? Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and as you, I mean, I've, I taught for more than 32 years and I, I always try to introduce new things in the classroom as well, but the more experience you have teaching, the less time you spend on lesson planning. You get better <laughs> at it, right? Yes. And um, and so that does free free up some more time to pursue some passions that you have. Um, and, but the other key is I have a, a really great husband who cooks mm. every night, right? <laughs> so yes, um, like I I will come home with the groceries and he'll put the meal together, and so. That also frees up a lot of time. So I, I did have a lot of time even when our children were growing up because um, I wasn't spending a lot of time on meal preparation. That was his mm-hmm. um, opportunity to be creative was to do the cooking in our house, and he still continues today. So um, mm. I have to give credit for him because I do. <laughs> it's true, Celeste, when I get my teeth into a bone I I do have a hard time letting it go like I will sort of bear down and and do what needs to be done to 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 learn how to do things that I'm interested in that's absolutely right and I think you know that ability to like look around and see what you know something about that others could benefit from I think that's also a real superpower that I think every teacher has something that they're really good at Mm. that other people could really benefit from Mm -hmm. but you know you had the chutzpah to like put it out there and you know you wrote a book that's pretty awesome but for some people that might be making an Instagram post or putting some resources up on Teachers Pay Teachers or making a blog about it I just want everyone to take that idea away from your journey in education too, that there's so much value in sharing the things that we know and the things we do really well. Oh, it's so true. And everyone has an impact no matter how small. So this is, you know, I am, you probably know, I I do love social media. And this is something that I I say a lot to people who are, are like, you know, I just lurk on social media. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, why don't why don't you try posting some things like you must feel strongly about certain things in education. And then some people will say, well, I don't I don't have any followers like no one cares. And um, that's not how social media works. You know, you put something out there, you, you have an idea out there, something you feel strongly about. And maybe one person will see it, but that person might have, you know, 
10 followers and the next person who sees it might share it and they might have 100 followers and then it just kind of snowballs mm -hmm. and before you know it your idea gets out there so everyone has impact and I really encourage teachers to get on social media. I think it's a great learning tool. I've learned so much about sketchnoting and about technology. And my my recent passion is uh, talking about anti-racism in, in the um, light of the past year in the George Floyd murder. Um, and I've learned so much about anti-racism just being on social media. Well, let's go there because sure. I knew about you before George Floyd's death, but I followed you on social media because of the things that you were posting after last summer. I was just seeing like people that I follow in edu circles and they were posting these like beautiful, powerful images. And then I would just see your name at the bottom, like, whoa, I know Sylvia Duckworth. Like, that's amazing. You know, you were posting about things like anti-Black racism, white privilege. Uh, you have a post about shutting down the racist Karens, whataboutism, pronoun usage, Pretty much there's every topic that you could right. find about under mm -hmm. the anti-oppression umbrella. You've got something yeah. related to it. Yeah. But I was interested because I'm like, I want to know Sylvia's journey to this because uh. I like scrolled back through your Instagram feed and that wasn't always the case for you. So uh -huh. I want to know about your transformation from, oh, sure. you know, the cool white teacher at Crescent who's teaching yeah. French and doing sketchnoting to mm -hmm. the activist on social media. Tell me yeah, about that journey. For sure. Yeah, well, I had a real, it was a real wake-up call for me, the George Floyd murder, as I'm sure it was for you, as I'm sure it was for a lot of white people who just kind of went, wow, this is, there's a serious problem <laughs> with racism and police brutality, and how could we be sort of so deaf to what black people have been telling us for for years. And so I, I just kind of delved into that to find out more about systemic racism and about the anti-racism movement. I started following some really great people on Instagram. I'm mostly on Instagram now. I used to be more on Twitter now. I'm mostly on Instagram. I'm hardly ever on Twitter, but... People like uh, Britt Hawthorne and um, Teach and Transform, uh, Liz Klein-Rock. She just wrote mm -hmm. a book, by the way. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and um, people like that that I started following, uh, and then Black Lives Matter people. And then I got in with a group of social justice artists. So I actually <laughs> I created this group um, on, on Instagram. And I invited 32 artists that I'd been admiring their work. Um, they were doing drawings about social justice issues that I'd been following, and I invited them into this chat on Instagram. So there's 32 of us. I would invite more, but there's the maximum of, of chats in, in Instagram to 32. And we kind of inspire each other. And so um, we'll, like someone will, will come to the chat and we, we chat every single day. Every day we, we're chatting. So I've got this wonderful support group. And someone will say, look, at, did you hear about this that's going on in the world? Let's create some art for it. And so we'll all create art about it. And then um, you or, or I might create something and just run it by the group for first before I put it on social media, mm -hmm. making sure that my information is correct and that I haven't, um, you know, overstepped any kind of boundaries that I shouldn't be 
overstepping. And so that sort of propelled me even further into the the social justice world. And um, that uh, sort of has been my, my trajectory for the past year. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I love that you have a group chat of really incredible people. Like To be a fly on the wall in that group chat would be pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you think you would be doing this if you were still in the classroom? Mm. That's such a good question, Celeste, because I think that I've become quite radicalized on social media, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure that the my past administration, um, I'm not sure how they would react to that, to tell you the truth. So I'm really glad that I'm retired and I have the freedom to, to post about things I want to post about. In fact, a, a really close friend of mine that... Um, is very outspoken with her views on on racial injustice. Is right now uh, in in a lot of trouble with her administration because of the stuff mm-hmm. she posts. She's a teacher as well, and so you know I'm really happy. I don't have to worry about that, and I can just be as obnoxious as I want on social media and not have to re- respond to anyone. So that's a good question. I would have to say, no, I wouldn't probably be being as vocal as I am now if I was still in a teaching position. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you can name that because I think many teachers who have strong beliefs want to be putting their voices out there or, you know, maybe that's the reason why they're lurking and they're afraid yeah, to post. Maybe, maybe. Do you have any advice for teachers who maybe want to and know the power of thinking more critically and sharing their voice um, and yet still have to be mindful of the communities that they're part of. Like, do you have any Mm. suggestions or advice? I know it's a hard topic. Yeah. Um, I think it really depends on your administration, Celeste. Like if you know that you have a supportive administration that really believes in the same things that you do, that probably you're going to be okay. I'm really seeing that there is a cultural shift happening, which I think you're picking up on. Like, you know, I was just on your Instagram the other day and you have 43,000 followers. And I don't know, was that true before you started this a year ago? Like creating, no. sketchnoting? Yeah. Like, I assume this has grown quite a bit in the last year. It has. It has. But again, uh, because that's sort of the circle that I'm in now, those are the, the people that follow me are interested in the stuff that I'm putting out. And I've made all these connections with the other social justice artists and and other wonderful people that are in that community that I've been following. And so, um, yeah, that 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 was sort of a, a delightful surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a clear indicator that there is a, a hunger and a thirst and a need for. Oh, sure. Learning. But, you know, I, I, I get my fair quantity of trolls as well that are really tiresome to deal with like my whole I don't know if you saw my last few posts are on critical race theory yeah they're great yeah thank you and boy wow am I ever glad that I don't live in the state in the United States that I'm not a teacher in the United States because things are ugly down there and I have friends who can't post about this stuff because they will be literally attacked like their their safety will be compromised and like it's really bad in 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 some parts of the states so 
I have people saying to me, boy, you're brave to be talking about things like this. I'm like, what do you mean I'm brave? Mm. They said, I, you know, the ones that live in Texas, I can't talk about this stuff. They'll say I'll be hounded by people. Um, so, yeah. So I've been. But it sounds like you are hounded. You know, and you know, yeah, but I'm my safety's never at risk. My my mm. job is not at risk. My family's not at risk. Where people in the states are, like they, um, this is a reality for a lot of teachers. If they get too political, it's really it's really dangerous. How do you deal with that? Like you're you're posting some pretty powerful stuff online, and I'm assuming that you know ninety nine percent of the comments that you're receiving are positive. Yeah, and then you get those awful comments. How do you yeah. deal with that emotionally from a well being place? Because yeah, your family is not being threatened, no. but it still is hard. Like you know, we're teachers mm-hmm. because we like pleasing people usually. For sure, but you know, so, whatever abuse I get online, you can imagine what it's like for black people or oh for. God racialized people who were who were talking about the same stuff yeah Um, yeah good point but so there's this wonderful button on instagram called block Mm. and so (laughs) as soon as i as soon as someone has any kind of like i could tell it's not just like a debate it's more when there there's a difference between a comment that sounds like they're interested in learning more and there's in a comment that is just out and out attacking you and as soon as i get a whiff of that tone it's a full-on block like i don't even want to deal with you um so there's there's that and then um yeah some days are worse than others like i have to say the whole critical race theory has been pretty intense in the past week i put up a couple posts about it and emotions are very very high right now about that in the states someone asked me actually yesterday why are you so um, involved in what's going on in the states and i in my mm-hmm. answer i had to think about that it's a good and question answer, yeah the answer is that because that's those are the people that i follow like most of the leaders in education in this anti-racism um sort of social justice movement are american and so yeah. i sort of get curious and I get wrapped up in the issues that that they're talking about um but I was really I felt really uh, I felt really good about the post that I did about critical race theory because I there was a real I found there was a real lack of clear information uh out there on what it is and how it pertains to teaching and the reason why the um there's not a lot of clarity on what it is is because it's an academic it's 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 a theory that's used in academia and and is used um in legal studies and it's not traditionally taught k to 12 in fact i'd be hard pressed to think of any schools that actually use critical race theory um in k to 12 it's all always been used in universities and so this is the ironic thing about everyone going ballistic about it in the states <laughs> is because it's not it's not taught K to 12. It's it's never been taught K to 12. Right. It's just so bizarre. And the other bizarre thing about it is that it's a, it's a theory that's used to look at structural racism, systemic racism. It's not it's not a a a, a personal or interpersonal um theory that that will make children feel oppressed, will make children feel like they are the the oppressors. It's a study into 
how racist laws and policies um, begin and how they are perpetuated and how they've been perpetuated over centuries in the United States and, and in Canada. And that's really what it's all about. And so the anti-CRTers really have no idea what they're what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're protesting. Isn't that always the case? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that always true? And I'm curious about people who are, you know, not in the block zone, but who are commenting, who seem like they're open to dialogue. Mm-hmm. Is that effective, do you think, to actually have a back and forth with people on social media? It, that's, um, it really depends on their mindset. So a lot, I don't know if you saw my stories today, but um, I got this email from this teacher who's 70 years old, and he said, um, I, I'm, I'm confused. He's American. He says, I've, I've been teaching for years, and I really don't think there is such a thing as systemic um, racism. Could you please tell me where there's systemic racism in the U.S.? So this is a scary because he's a teacher, and b like if you want to maybe you want to use Google. But anyway, um, so I I answered him with a fairly long explanation, and then he got back to me and he basically turned out to be a semi-troll like he just wanted to see what I had to say and then he said that I was misled and then you should try I should try reading these books and um, it's too bad you're not using your influence to to teach uh, things that are you know away from race and racism and you know the funny thing is I don't know we've been spending a lot of time talking about this but I have to say the thing that confuses me most about CRT is the statement that a lot of anti-CRTs are saying is that CRT is racist. <laughs> so how does that make any sense to you? Oh, my God. That, yeah. So they claim that when you talk about race and racism and systemic racism, that you're being racist because you're, I guess, they're, I, they're, their thought process is when you actually talk about these things, you make people more aware of race and you make, make them more aware of, um, of inequities in society, which is racist, which is so such a stupid argument. Um, so I've, I've just created a post. I'm going to actually put it out tomorrow. And it's a graphic that says, talking about racism isn't racist. Like the whole notion That's is just great. so ridiculous. But it, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind hearing that is that sometimes you have to get more sick in order to get better. Like mm. in my own anti-racism journey, I definitely feel like by learning more about how I am personally racist as mm. a white woman, I am more aware of my own racism and it brings it up to the surface. It's For like sure. when you're trying to like detox your body stuff is going to come out and that's the stuff that we're uncomfortable with that I think you know I I always try to be empathetic to people especially people I don't agree with and I want to believe that that's probably where that belief is coming from that you know to unearth this stuff it was fine before when it wasn't up at the surface and now look at what you're doing you're bringing this all up to the surface it was fine before but you have to bring it up to the surface in order to 
be better. Like you have to know how you are personally racist in order to confront those biases and confront the way that you have been benefiting from this system. Like, oh, absolutely. You have to. And that is so uncomfortable. It is, it's... you know, as a society, it is going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. It is It is uncomfortable. Um, it's... The thing about CRT, though, is it's not about those discussions, per se. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's more looking at systemic racism. So the point is that um, there's no reason why this shouldn't be discussed in schools. You have to talk about systemic racism to get to the bottom of why this is all happening and, and, and how these policies were created. But, um, but that's not to say that anti-racism and, and the type of stuff you were talking about shouldn't be discussed also. Like, I think that, I think that also has to be a discussion in schools. And I think white people have to recognize um, their inherent racism. And it's hard to say, and it's hard to accept, but like, I'll give you an example. Like me in the past year with all the learning I've done, and I've read I've read about 20 books and I've listened to podcasts and I've like, I've really been kind of obsessed with it. As you said, I've, you know, this is something that I've become really interested in. And so I want to really learn a lot about it. Um, so I was in a grocery store the other day and it was a high end grocery store in a fairly affluent neighborhood. And I was in a rush and I was looking for something and there was, um, a black person with a cart like filled with groceries and the the black person was wearing a green shirt which which turns out to be the color of the shirts that the employees were wearing in the store um but i turned to this person and said do you know where the ketchup is mm-hmm. and he looked at me and his shirt was green but it was a nike shirt it wasn't like i i was in such a rush i didn't really pay attention and after that after that, I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you worked here. And I was so embarrassed. Like, mm-hmm. how could I have made that? Because this person was black, I had assumed that he wasn't a customer, that he was actually an employee. And I was just devastated with just, I, I want to talk about that just to show that even with the learning that you, you've been doing, that I've been doing over the past year, I still fall into those, oops, actually, I am pretty racist still and I still have a lot of growth to do in that area and so um, this whole anti-racism thing it's not it's not like a I've read a bunch of books and I'm done it's an ongoing journey that we constantly have to reevaluate and keep on learning about have you read uh, Deep Diversity by Shaquille Chaudhry no add it to your list he's a canadian he's from toronto he runs animal leadership he was on the podcast uh like maybe 15 episodes ago i'll send you the link but he uh is a pakistani descent and he was really upfront in his book in talking about how even him even him as a person of color has had moments similar to like what you're describing Mm -hmm. where he has caught himself in these moments and he's been doing this work i mean you know like i i love that you've been doing this journey for a year shaquille has been doing this journey for 30 plus years you know and he's been steeped in this kind of work and thinking and he even catches himself and he gives some really clear examples that i can't remember right now but he really talks about how 
it, it's, it affects all of us, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of world gets into all of us. And mm-hmm. even after doing this work for so many years, it doesn't go away. It's yeah. how we, it's how we process it, how we engage with it. We may catch ourselves faster, but mm-hmm. I don't think that any one of us is immune to it. No, but no. I'm really grateful that you shared that moment. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about retired life because when I reached out to you first about coming on the podcast you were very sweet and you're like I want you to know that I'm retired I'm not teaching right now Mm -hmm. but Sylvia you clearly are still teaching you're still Mm -hmm. a teacher you're teaching people on social media you're teaching people about sketchnoting you've been traveling around um, obviously not going to conferences this past year but how has pandemic retired life been for you? Oh, it's been, it's actually been good because my husband and I, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we escaped, we, um, we escaped to the U.S. Um, a few months ago and we were there for 12 weeks. So, um, but up to that point, it was tough. It was really tough being in, the, we live right downtown in Toronto. We don't have a country home, um, you know, this, that statement just sounds so privileged, but um, we <laughs> we um, we're stuck in the city. We don't have family with country places, and you know the city is not a happy place during a pandemic. There's mm-hmm. all the businesses are closed and shuttered up, and um, you know restaurants and bars, and it's just it's dreary in the winter. And so we just, you know, we're, my husband's semi-retired. We have friends with the place in Arizona and they said, come on down. And we went and guess what? We got our vaccine the day after we arrived. Oh, you could get it there. That's amazing. Yeah. That was in February. Cool. And then we got our second vaccine three weeks later. So they, yeah, they really have, they've up the, that's one thing the states are definitely doing right is they're, they've, they've got the vaccine machine really, really mm-hmm. rolling. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, that, that made the past year a little bit more manageable. Um, but, uh, I think teachers, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine teaching during a pandemic. So, um, hats off to you and, and everyone else who's a teacher who's listening to this podcast. I really, I think if I had to teach through this, I would have quit for sure. I don't think I, I don't think I would have hung in there. Well, I think a lot of people have, I think there's, yeah. you know, a lot of people that are calling in early retirements or extending maternity leaves or, you know, finding ways to change gears. Absolutely. Um, I think we're still going through it. You know, like if you've ever gone through something traumatic, it's hard to really name what it is while you're in the middle of it. But I think that I think there's going to be some really interesting processing that takes place over the next couple of years as we sort of look back and ask ourselves, what what was that? Oh, for for sure. But the mental health cost is going to be and continues to be and is presently astronomical isn't it for for everyone and I'm really worried about that I'm really worried about the long-term repercussions of um of this pandemic on people's mental health and there's been some better things that have happened you know I think that as everything starts to get back to normal whatever Mm -hmm. that means and I'm Mm -hmm. sure you experienced that in the states as people were getting vaxxed and everything is opening up like I heard Mm -hmm. Broadway is opening up again which Mm -hmm. is I mean, mind blowing. 
But Mm -hmm. I think as things start getting back to normal, I hope that there's many things that we figured out during this pandemic Mm. that really was better for students and in some ways was better for teachers. There's like, it's been a dumpster fire in the words of Angela Watson, who was just on the show last week. But I, I think that there have been these little nuggets that have come out because of the pandemic that I hope we can somehow nurture for the future. No, I I agree with you 100%. And I have, um, I have a sister, a younger sister, quite a bit younger, and she has young children. And she says they've just had such a a family bonding experience Mm -hmm. in the past year. Like they've, you know, it used to be the dad used to have to travel all the time and now he's home and spending lots of time with the family and they've, they've never been happier. So it, it really depends on, but I mean, I think the, the biggest, um, problem with the pandemic is so many people lost their jobs and they don't have incomes coming in um and that's that's been horrible yeah yeah i I hope that that's one of the things that gets back to normal that just people are able to have professions that they're excited about and things become more open yeah so we're going to close off with the ticket out the door as we always do which is just Fun questions that Mm -hmm. allow people to get to know a little more about you. Are you ready to play? Yes. All right. What is something you are grateful for right now? I'm grateful for uh, my husband who's about, he's, I can smell dinner being cooked right now. (laughs) (laughs) That is wonderful. What is the first thing you do when you wake up? I have a cup of coffee, a nice latte. Mm, made by your husband, I assume. No, actually, that one I do myself. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm pretty good with an espresso machine. <laughs> nice. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? I watch TV. We usually lie in bed and watch some TV. We watch the news, the CBC News, every night. Mm, nice. You are starting an educational podcast. Who will be your first three guests? Okay, um, I'm going to go right off the bat with Teach and Transform. She's Oof. Liz Kleinrock yeah. on Instagram. I'm going to go with my friend Ken Shelton, who's a black educator in California, who's um, been a mentor of mine in the past year with everything anti-racism. And the third person is sticking to education. Um, you know what? I'm obsessed with Kimberly Crenshaw. <sighs> So I would probably have her. And so listeners who maybe aren't familiar with her, she's um, the one who came up with the concept of intersectionality. And I've been watching a lot of her uh, TED Talks recently. There's one that everyone has to listen to, and it's the one on intersectionality. Um, And if you were to go to YouTube and look for TED Talk, Kimberly Crenshaw, intersectionality and say her name and bring lots of Kleenex. You're going to ball your eyes out. And we'll um, put it in the show notes. Yeah, that is awesome. It's amazing. What is the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Mm, I am currently binging and loving The Handmaid's Tale. Ooh, what season are you on? That's very oh, important. I'm, I'm totally up to date. Oh, God. Yeah. We, whew, there's a lot of, there's a lot happening there. It's very, 
hard. We would have to watch that and then chase it with either Parks and Rec yeah, or 30 Rock totally. because it's just so heavy. It's but not so uplifting. Good. It's not uplifting at all. Yeah. You can't watch that right before bed. It no. is hard. But the last season, there's so much hope. I just, it, it restored everything for me. Are you, are you up to date this season? I am. Um, no, not the current season that's okay. out now. Whatever. You'll 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 be really happy with the turn of events. Trust me. Okay, okay. Putting it on my to watch list. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, pie or cake? I'm a pie person for sure. Mm. Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or fall? Spring. What would be your last meal on Earth? Uh, I would be probably. Um, I'm gonna say. Oh gosh. Something something with salmon in it. I love salmon. Mm, Any kind nice. of barbecued salmon would, would be in there. Maybe some broccolini and um, probably a creme caramel for, for dessert. Ooh, that's so good. I like that. Mm. Okay, the last question I ask everybody on the show, so you can enter it at whichever angle you want to. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the future of learning? I think it's going to be a hybrid of uh, remote and in person that was a, a very deep answer but that was <laughs> okay. i'm looking i'm looking more at the you know the yeah the actual right up. the actual but if i were to look at it more philosophically um i would hope that the future of learning um, allows students to be more empowered into deciding what they want to learn about and i hope that it would get rid of assessment altogether Mm. I mean, both of those were really solid answers. So thank you yeah. for taking and I a hope. Can I add too. one more thing? Yeah, totally. And I hope that there's a community engagement component to learning where it's not forced upon students, but the, etho- the ethos in the school community is that students want to work at bettering their community. And it's, it's something that, that becomes a driving passion with them. I'm really, really glad that I got to talk to you tonight. This is such great learning. You have such a wonderful brain, and I'm just uh, a big fan of the stuff that you're putting out there. So keep being amazing. Thank you, Celeste. Thanks for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. A big thank you to Sylvia Duckworth for jumping onto the show today and sharing her insights and learnings with all of us. The key takeaways that I'm left with are these. Number one, Start small and start where you are. Sylvia mentioned this when she was talking about how she teaches others how to draw doodles, but I think this also applies to how we use our voices online, how we gradually improve with any skill, and probably most importantly, how we further ourselves on a social justice journey. The second is find your people. Social media is all the things. Yes, there are trolls, and yes, there is a risk in sharing your opinions online, But with thoughtfulness and intentionality, it's also an amazing tool to find your larger learning community outside of the walls of your classroom. Put yourself out there, share your teaching wins with the world and lean on others for support. And finally, the third, be comfortable with making mistakes. Sylvia shared her own tricky moment in the grocery store and I'm so glad she did because I think it really highlights how even once you've started the journey to be a better anti-racist, we're still going to mess up. It's more important how we learn from this and how we take ownership. We have all been steeped in this culture. It takes a long time to truly unlearn. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow. 
and leave me a rating and review through Apple Podcasts. You don't have to be one of those lurkers like Sylvia mentioned. You can say hi and connect. I really, really love it. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep sharing your gifts with the world. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.